Welcome to the Rise Network Podcast Show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Mayu Thaba. And Austin couldn't make it today. So unfortunately, <laughs> Mayu needs to carry the podcast. Uh, when people hear that, that, they probably think, oh, Austin's not going to be on the preamble. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I actually can't do that. Better. That's okay. That's it. That's good. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, you can take it. Uh, you, Austin, you what's can, going on, man? What have you been up to? Uh, what have I been up to? Um... I'm trying to think. That's a, that's a good question. There's a lot of small things, really. It has been too busy as of recent. We've listed our Sudbury property for sale. Um, we did a price cut on that uh, to just try to move it. But we've been getting, fortunately, since the price cut, we've been getting a steady amount of showings in there. The market is just so slow, man. I just keep on saying it every episode, but that it is what it is right now. So hopefully we'll get that sold. I think it's a matter of just waiting for the right buyer because by far we are the absolute best value yeah. because properties that needed to be renovated were selling north of 370K. How much are you looking at? I'm trying to get something turnkey for like mid 300s, even, oh, shit. even less like 340K. That one was I'm not, not trying to be greedy on that one. Just a, a quick sale, the leverage take a little bit of those profits and roll it into something else of velocity of money. But yeah, we've been getting good feedback so far. So been working on that for our Toronto property, have a couple of negotiations going on. So we'll see how that comes along. We had offer presentation yesterday, didn't go as planned, barely any showings even with the price reduction, but we have two people that we're negotiating with now. So we'll see how that, again, how that comes along. Interesting. But market, yeah, days of inventory are fucked. Like condo days of inventory in GTA is five months now or about five months. Yeah, yeah. It was sub two in uh, April, May, which is when I sold my condo. So thank fucking God it was the right <laughs> time. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and freeholds have dipped a little bit as well. I think freeholds are up to the threes. Threes or fours, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, man, dude, like it's it's been it's been super slow. So I haven't been super, super busy with stuff. Some negotiations with sellers. That's really it, dude. How about how about on your end? So what's the point at which it switches to a buyer's market again? Like, I'm sure it is a buyer's market, but what, there's like a rule. It's like if we I have- I think it was like six months, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I don't six remember. Yeah. Honestly, it, it's it's almost like it's all dependent, right? Like in Toronto, you don't expect it to ever get to that point. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, all it's always been a month or two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that, that, that makes sense. Good on with me. Uh, fuck, I was telling you before, I just feel like I'm- uh, Burning the candle on, on on both ends. Just right right now, we're uh, going to be on vacation next week. We're going to Greece and Dubai, so it's trying to get as many mortgage files done as possible. Obviously, we'll work from there. But and then from the real estate side, the, uh, the cottages, yeah, it's just sitting on the market. To be honest, we get we get inquiries. The problem is we're still like booked every weekend, and some of the weekdays were booked as well. So like this week, we weren't able to do any showings until Sunday after. I think 2 p.m. or 3 p.m. or something like that. And then we have someone else checking in on Monday as well, I believe. So there's complications there, but like our priority is the Airbnb side. And then if it yeah. sells and if we can, we will sell it. If we don't, we're not necessarily like completely butthurt about it, right? So that one's going on there. My, I don't know if I talked about this here. Like, I can't remember if I did. I talked about like a contractor that's kind of screwing with us on our Sudbury one, but yeah, um, that's so kind of ongoing. So we'll kind of see how that plays out once 
we have my 30, don't want to publicly, don't want to publicly talk about it just yet. But aside from that, uh, yeah, the, the private lending world is good, man. Um, you know, I have been talking a little bit more about development recently, so that's good. It's crazy, man. I, I have a couple of clients that are like in the development game, like, you know, super over levered. <laughs> they might even hear this and they know they're over levered and that's okay. Right. But just like very like comfortable being over levered. So I don't know if I'll ever get to that spot of like being that comfy being over levered, but I just think it's interesting times. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of potential. So we'll kind of see what, what comes of it. That was my, I think I said nothing there, but I said a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, honestly, that's sort of the reality a lot with development. If you're not raising, if you're not raising equity partners, then yeah. you're going to have to take leverage and be okay with it. And the numbers, you know, like a lot of the time for people getting into it, they have confidence in their numbers when they're underwriting, you know, so. For us, I don't know, uh, to your point, I don't know if we do it just right now, but it is somewhere in the horizon where we're just being a little bit, we're being, we're being sissies right now. But you know what? Like it's, it's all, it's all up to comfort level at the end of the day. I still think that there's likely more pain to come, especially in the condo market in the GTA. That is just going to get absolutely pulverized. I, I bet with all of the pre-constructions of assignments not being able to be assigned. I think we're just going to stay here for longer than people expect. I think everyone's expecting like this is like going to come down, which I think is the wrong way to kind of think about it. Right. I think we kind of just have to accept that this is a reality. And if this is a reality, then like how long can you kind of like stay as is for kind of becomes a question. Yeah. Right. Versus like everyone's expecting this up and down kind of um, economy, which I don't know. I'm sure it will happen if you stretch it out over a long enough period of time. Right. But I don't know if it's going to happen immediately and then kind of return back to what it was that. Yeah. Fast. So we'll see you, man. Before we jump in, uh, talking about the economy, the GDP, Canadian GDP data. It's came out tomorrow, today. right? No, it came out tomorrow, Saturday, dude. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah Yo, you don't want to let people know that we're, we're that last minute. No, no, it came out today. It was, uh, it was, it was zero. So it was, um, there wasn't zero. any. I was thinking negative. Huh? Okay. That would have put us in a recession, right? I think it was yeah, the two technical quarters. definition. And Technically, we are in a recession on a per capita basis by that yeah. fucking, <laughs> but not, not the technical definition. Uh, but that we fell short of expectations because they were expecting a 0.1% increase in GDP, but we stayed at zero. And maybe that's a case for the Bank of Canada to hold rates as it is, because where it is right now, I think most people are expecting a 25 basis point hike before the end of the year, whether that be in October or Christmas gift to us in December. But yeah, Desjardins, at least one person in Desjardins based on this data was suggesting that it may give fuel to just keep things as is because it means that they're actually doing their job, right? Like things are not. Nice. Yeah, that, that would be fucking amazing. Dude, dude, my Scar- <laughs> I don't know if I told you this, my Scarborough property, I thought I was on a five-year fix. I was at a four-year fix. I got it in 2020. It's going to maturity in January of 2024. That was just, I received January calls. 2024. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah dude, <laughs> rates right now, January yeah. is probably going to be even higher. <laughs> yeah, short of my primary it's, residence, that's like one of my biggest mortgages. And so I'm like, fuck. Uh, yeah. I, th- I definitely thought I was like, I was golden. I had like a 2.7 locked in in 2020 until, um, I thought it was 2025. Yeah, you, you, you're you're renewing in the sixes to sevens. Yeah. Yeah. They call me the other day. I'm like, why are you guys call me? Like, this is a year and a half. I was like, this is a little bit premature. He's like, the guy on the phone was like, really? Like, you're up like January. I'm like, nah, and you stupid. <laughs> I know, like, ah, oh, no. <laughs> I went and looked at my documents. I'm like, no fucking way. This is bullshit. Oh, dude, that's the worst time. Oh, God, man. Oh, I'm so sorry <laughs> yeah, to hear about that. Yeah, I know. Like, uh, I got my three year fixed rate for my primary that I'm closing on in November at. 5.64%. I think I was telling you. 
Yeah. But we had to go, it was a monoline lender. We had to go 52% down to qualify for that rate. Yeah. But now what I'm seeing is, is that rates are up to three or fixed. It was like 6.5% now, something like that. 6.4 to 6.5. And some yeah, cases, you can still do some 6.15, stuff like that, right? But yeah, yeah, I, I remember the conversation on here. That was also a really good rate, I think, that you got there. Yeah, so, yeah uh, but that's a big down payment. <laughs> Anyways, we're going to jump into today's episode. Today, we have Safe, who is the owner of New 4 Inc., a construction company that specializes in pretty much everything. They do commercial, they do residential, they do multifamily conversions, they do garden suites. They offer a wide variety of services across construction. It was really cool to hear his journey because he started off doing lipstick renovations for investors for himself. And then from there, he started adding on more things like doing second story additions and building his business around that. And while a lot of construction companies are definitely being impacted with the downturn in the real estate market, Safe is finding new ways to sell, be able to grow his business, specializing in the commercial space, pivoting things over and continuing to make more money than he was before. So there's always opportunities. Eh? When, when tough times come, there's always a way to pivot your business. And he's a prime example of that. Not only do we go into his business, we go into real estate investing, what he's seeing other investors do, what his other clients are doing right now to remain active in the market. This is an episode you don't want to miss out on. Just as a quick note, Remember, we've been focusing more of our episodes on recent times and how to scale how investors are dealing with the current market, right? So these are newer episodes that you guys are hearing. So make sure to tune in, leave us a five-star review, share this with a friend, and we're going to jump right on in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Safe. Safe, how's everything going, my man? I'm good. How are you, Austin? Things are good here. So Safe, for anyone that doesn't know you, uh, you know, we've, we've gotten acclimated a little bit in the last little bit, but uh, why don't you give a quick background on yourself, how you entered into the space of contracting and doing the types of projects that you're doing today uh, with it a very, like, it seems like a very investor-oriented kind of clientele as well, right? So why don't you give us your background on how you even got into the space? Okay, awesome. So I started in 2016. And like many people, I started with a small single family home that needed a little bit of uh, renovation. Uh, we went from there and then um, I started, um, I acquired another property, you know, the, the whole burn model. And then uh, the next property after that needed a bit more renovation. I wasn't too happy with the quality of the contractors and trades that were available at the time. And as an FYI, I focus in the Hamilton area. So like in Hamilton, I found it like 2016, 17, 18, it was still a little bit of the early days then. So not a lot of people will come out here and uh, there was a bit of a shortage in trades then as well, especially in the quality of the trades too. So I started doing some of the work myself. People noticed, they liked it and they started calling me and asking me to do stuff for them on other projects. So that's how we got exposed to more of the renovation side as well. That obviously grew to what it is today. And then now we do, you know, residential, commercial. We won our first uh, public project last month as well for the city of Hamilton. And we've done 150 units over the last three years. Super, super impressive stuff. Yeah, I'm sure there's going to be a lot to dive down into. Let's start out with the investing journey. And then we almost work our way into what seems like the construction. So when you were starting off, you were doing single family house and small sort of projects from there. I think a lot of our audience likes to know when most people start off, like, how do you go about it? Like, was this just money that you saved? Were you doing it sort of the old fashioned wait till the market appreciates and refinance out where you're approaching it in an aggressive way? And by the way, did you have any construction experience at all as you were going through the first few projects? So when I did it, I started in 2016. Things were a lot easier. 
my rates were super low. You could buy stuff if it was for your primary residence with 5% down. Houses cost $400,000. So you can get your feet wet for $25,000 back then. So it was a lot easier to enter the market. So that was what sort of helped me enter the market. So obviously with that amount of money, I ended up saving it. So I used to work up north in uh, the mines in Northern BC. I was doing the whole uh, fly in, fly out. So I would just save, save, save and not spend. And wow. then accumulate enough money to be able to buy a house, do some work to it, refinance a little bit, and then save some more and then buy another one, so on and so forth. Right now it's a bit more tricky. So if anyone is starting today, I would say the biggest asset would be a joint venture partnership. So now you need $150,000, $200,000 to sort of get your feet wet in the residential space. So do it with two people. If you can't, do it with three people, whatever you can, just to sort of make sure that you're getting your feet wet. At least you own one small portion. So it's just now you have one denomination less. Yeah, share resources, right? Pool resources to be able to do more with limited resources that you start with. Yeah. So that's interesting because I think... um uh, you didn't really have much of a contracting background, but the first couple of projects make sense. The single family houses, those are kind of like the normal ones, but I know you eventually moved into, I think, conversions and garden suites. Like, what was that process like? Because I think the biggest challenge for someone like me, right? Like I don't have the contracting background. It took me a while to figure out how to understand zoning maps and zoning regulations and stuff like that after owning like all these units, right? So how did yeah. you go about with that transition on the education side? Was it just ultimately learning on your own projects, any tools or resources or tips? Yeah. So I completely didn't answer your last question if I had any background. So I studied engineering and now I'm an engineer. So I used to work for a consultant yeah. firm, used to work for a contractor. So I do have some experience, but I wouldn't say it's really relevant experience. So my mind thinks in that direction. When I started, I had zero professional experience in this specific sector. I used to work in transit, rail, mining and metals. So it's not really transferable knowledge, but just my mind thinks that way. So I had to learn all that stuff after hours, like after 5 p.m. before work starts and all that stuff. And the best way is for you to always speak to people that are already doing it, especially starting off. If you go to all these investor meetups, there's way too much information online. You know, you speak to the few people that are doing it, they're going to zero in on two, three points that you need to focus on. Everything else is just noise. Right. Yeah. What our audience really loves to hear now is, is that given that you've done an impressive 150 units over the past three years, a lot has changed over the three years, rates being one of them, cost of material, cost of labor, strategies, right? First people were doing single family duplexes, then triplexes, garden suites. So there's a bunch of different strategies out there. How has the investment mind shifted over the past three years? And what are you seeing more frequently in today's market in your personal portfolio, but also your client's portfolio as well? I think up to when the rate hike started. So everything before we started with the rate hikes, everybody was an investor. Everybody. You buy a house for $500,000. People have $100,000 saved or pooled between two people. They'll put that hundred into the house. Then the house is worth 800, 900. So they're like, wow, look, I doubled my returns. But the reality is the market went up. That same $600,000 house is now worth 800000 So if you average this for the market, they really would have been at like negative 100. So they didn't do too much of the forced appreciation. For the past, call it for the sake of round number 20 years, the market's been doing all the heavy lifting. So what I notice now versus back then, the seasoned investors that really understand their numbers and have a strategy and they're buying in at the right point, those are the ones that are staying super active. 
versus before it was every single person who had like one or, or two sort of properties. But now because the market's not doing the heavy lifting, people are starting to sink in way too much money because they weren't as picky with their analysis when they bought the property. That, that's actually so well said. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it's, it's actually very true, right? Like I think the example that you gave of the property that someone bought for 500 now being worth 600 is exactly what happened. And that helped cover a lot of mistakes. Even me, like when you start with a renovation budget of 40 grand, you end up like 65 and you're like, ah, oh, shit. But the market picks up. So it kind of covers your ass to say, right? No. You know, that being said, like where are you seeing, because I know obviously you've got quite a bit of experience in a bunch of different categories of, of real estate investing and, and kind of helping investors, but also your own projects, right? What strategy are you seeing a lot of investors doing today that kind of makes the most sense in your opinion? If you have a few units maybe under your belt, the lending is becoming super tough on the residential side. And I don't own hundreds of units or anything like that, but I, I do speak to people that do own many, many units. And what people are doing on that scale is they're starting to consolidate a lot more and go towards the commercial. Now, commercial doesn't only mean commercial properties, but you could have commercial financing on residential properties. You could group 10 homes together and then go after a commercial just blanket loan against all of those properties at a slightly lower loan to value, slightly higher interest, but extremely scalable. So a lot of people are starting to consolidate that because the lending is becoming super tough. Mm -hmm. And how about on the renovation side of things? I think uh, lending is always sort of, I feel like it, and my, you, you can probably agree, it's, it's only going to get tougher over time. So people have to be creative and it is forcing, we're seeing it in our community. A lot of people are doing bigger multifamily things because they can't qualify on the personal level. But on the construction side of things, what type of projects are you doing for your clients nowadays? Is it like cosmetic lipstick or are they doing massive conversion projects, garden suites? What are you seeing most common? So right now, there is definitely a lot less end user renovation. So when COVID hit, the end user renovation went crazy because people are just sitting at home. They're finding a whole bunch of stuff. They don't like this and that in the house. Property values started skyrocketing. They can't move. So people were doing a ton of work to their homes. So residential end user and investors was both solid. Again, that commercial tanked because, you know, a lot of the projects weren't going ahead and people didn't know. You know, there's an uncertainty in the future and, and stuff like that. And people wanted to change the use of the properties. Now I'm finding that, and this is from a lot of fellow contractors in the industry as well. The end user renovation is slowly going down. Okay. It's much slower than before, but if you're established and you have a good name and you're part of, uh, for example, a community of uh, investors and real estate investors, the conversion projects are still super common. There's a lot of them and there's a ton of commercial right now we're closing a ton of commercial jobs. So both of those have now really, really ramped up. And when you say commercial jobs, are you referring to like apartment building commercial jobs, like, like turning over individual units or like, what are you referring to exactly? The commercial commercials back a lot. I mean, like yeah, businesses, but, ah, okay. businesses like we closed our re retirement home uh, recently. We just uh, also yesterday we closed one as well. It's a big one for uh, Good Shepherd as well. So a lot of commercial businesses are just investing back in the business and back in the buildings as well. That's interesting. I wonder if that has anything to do. So there's a lot of government grant programs that are essentially out there. There's like the CSBFL and stuff like that, that essentially promotes a lot of reinvesting into the business and tangible assets, which is exactly what you're talking about. So that's definitely interesting. I think most of our guests are ultimately going to be residential investors. Yeah. Like investors, maybe one, two or three properties kind of scaling up right now. 
So for them, uh, just kind of zeroing in a little bit on the strategies that we know. So the conversion strategy, are you right. seeing a lot of people still making decent money with that? What markets are you seeing that it works in? Because you guys, I think, cover a pretty decent sized area, right? So yeah, yeah. what markets are you seeing it working? What's working? What's not for that? So I focus in Hamilton because our business is based here and whatnot. And it just works. It's just one of those verticals that we just have to continue doing. That's why I invest locally. But the further you're willing to go out in terms of your market, if you're just a real estate investor and looking at the numbers, and once you can disconnect from your sort of like a, a local neighborhood, you're going to do a lot better because the cap rates there are a lot higher. So if you're looking to buy a building, maybe not today, but you know, in Sudbury, let's say, versus in Hamilton, you'll probably be doing a lot better than you're doing here. But if you're looking to invest in this area, let's say Hamilton, Kitchener, Brantford, Toronto, a great thing to do is the garden suites right now. Essentially, the more dense you can make a property. So if you can turn one property into, I think the sweet spot is three units, but up to four, depending how good the bones are, you're going to do very well. So single family to duplex, you'll do okay if you're looking to hold onto it forever almost. Okay. Because it's barely going to break even at today's rates. Three units, you'll definitely cash flow. Okay. So if you have a home that you split into a duplex and then you have an existing garage that you convert into a garden suite, you're going to do really well. It's going to cash flow quite good and it's going to be a nice quality asset. You'll recoup a nice chunk of change too. Okay. Because the home is worth a lot more. Four units is also possible with now with current bylaws, but you have to meet building code requirements. So once you hit four units, the building code requirements are more stringent. You need more headroom, you need parking and stuff like that is big ticket items. So you may not be making out better by having four units versus three, unless the bones are absolutely rock solid. So if you walk into a home and there's a basement, first floor, second floor attic, and the bones are solid, you're walking in everywhere and you're passing with flying colors, minimum six, five, six, six everywhere, even under the bulkheads then that's a good one for a four unit conversion, but it's also more capital intensive. So I think the sweet spot is three units. Let's say that I'm a new investor. So I'm hearing all of these things, but is there sort of a check? I like that you were to describe this to a new investor. Is there a mental checklist that you have that says this property is prime for a four unit conversion, right? Cause I know there's a lot of small things like offsets, parking, zoning, and a bunch of these things that you need to consider to know the highest and best use. Do you sort of have a mental checklist? You're probably so used to it that when you see it, yeah. you immediately know, but explain it sort of in layman's term for someone who might not, because I personally don't have that checklist in my mind. Damn. Yeah. So, uh, well, with the last, with, with the whole Ford bill a couple of years ago, now you can convert any home into four units, right? But for example, if you're up to three units, you can maintain the existing parking. So if you have no parking, you don't have to add anything. Once you hit four units, you got to add parking. So that's a big ticket item because you need a curb cut, you need to pave it. You know, whether you're doing one parking spot or two parking spots, which is really double, it's not going to be double the cost. So you're getting less bang for your buck. Once you hit four units, you have higher clearance requirements. So on a typical conversion up to three units, you got to have six foot one inch minimum under the bulkheads. And I'll explain why that's important. And then um, to the ceilings. Sorry, I don't know people, I shouldn't know this, but it's because it's in metric, but so it's six, five or six, six on the ceilings. Okay. So six, five, six, six, and then you have six, one under the bulkheads. That's the minimum up to three units. Once you hit four units, it's much higher than that. I think they add, you add six inches onto each. So it's, it's probably around six, six under the bulkheads and seven, something like that onto the ceilings. So that's a big ticket item. 
And that can derail a project because if you don't have most basements, you're barely clearing 6-1 under the bulkheads. So in order for you to hit those minimums, you now need to underpin. That costs an arm and a leg on the average house. You're talking seventy to $90,000. And this is across interior, right? Not just like specific to accounts. That's yes, interior code. Right. Yes. So you can have four units now, right? So I think the sweet spot is more three units because even if you somehow manage to buy a home that is super, super cheap and you got to do the four units, you still have to put up the capital for that. And those renovations, when it's full guts and you're repurposing the space, you're usually going to be north of $400,000 and you're paying for that out of pocket unless you can arrange construction financing, which a lot of people can't. So I would say the nice sweet spot is three units. Gotcha. And this is all within the existing structure of like yeah. one house. Have Correct. you ever seen anyone do that with like a townhouse or is this only like detached properties? Because I feel like in Toronto, I feel like I've seen it in semis. Yeah, you could do townhouse. Everything comes back to the building code requirements. Building code has tons of requirements. So as long as you meet the building code requirements, you can do it in anywhere. Now, it's just after the mm-hmm. law. So think of a townhouse. Two of the long sides in the basement and on the main floor and on the second floor, you have no windows. Right. It was just harder to meet natural light requirements. So you're limited in terms of what you can do. So if you have, think of it, a, a skinny sort of structure, just if you're looking in plan, skinny structure, this is a basement plan, yeah, right? Yeah. You only get windows on one side and the other. So one thing is for sure is you can't close both of those off to make them a bedroom because otherwise you have no natural light in your space. So that basement can't be a two bed, you know? And also I imagine fire exits as well, right? Like if they need yes. the dedicated exits, how are you going to get four units in, in there? Like, yeah, it comes down to the layout that you're working with. Yeah. And so we're talking about doing the four unit with the existing structure. You mentioned garden suites. We've had a couple of people who have mentioned garden suites in the past. I want to hear your thoughts on sort of how the numbers shake out. Cause I guess the biggest issue, and Mai, you can, why don't you talk about it, Mai, on the financing side, what the issue is, and then we can kind of get Safe's opinion on if it's worthwhile investment for people who are doing it. Yeah. So, so I did see that you guys have financing. So I'm curious to talk about that as well. But I think the biggest issue is historically appraisers have always valued one existing structure on one dwelling, right? And that was a policy for the banks for an extended period of time. It's not that, hey, if you had four units, we're not going to value it. It's just one building, one mortgage, one property, whatever it was called. And so now we're starting to see B lenders car around, right? And they're starting to say, hey, garden suites, totally fine. We're going to include in the value. And we're going to start factoring this. And that was like within the last like one or two months, right? Some credit unions, very limited, bar and a few, right? But there are starting to be options, but still not like everywhere. It's not easy, right? And so I'm curious what you're seeing a lot of people do. Because for a long time, it was, hey, if you have equity in your house, refinance, get a home equity line of credit, put it into the garden suite. And then at that time, it was, if you can't qualify to buy anything else, you should just do this, right? Because now you're adding more income, right? Low interest rates at that time for HELOCs as well. So that definitely helped, right? But I'm curious about like, what type of individual are you seeing doing a garden suite? And then, you know, not to hold you to this and everyone should know every project is going to be completely different, but is there a price per square foot for like a garden suite built? What's the normal kind of specs that you guys are building out? Stuff like that. Those are really good questions. Those are all the pain points in garden suites. Right. Because on the surface, it looks amazing, right? But here's the first problem is it's new and anything that's new gets a lot of criticism and is not adopted in the masses. So if there's a new concept and you have 50 lenders, it's impossible for all 50 lenders to come on board. On day one, you might get zero to one lender. Six months in, you might get five lenders. A year in, you might get seven lenders, but it takes time for something to be widespread. Right. So 
garden suite make a ton of sense in the cash flow perspective. So you can make an absolute killing in terms of the money that you're spending versus what you're getting back. So compared to a basement, for example, most of the times in these old houses, you're completely gutting the basement, complete gut, because just the layout doesn't work, the headroom doesn't work, stuff like that. So a lot of people that do the duplex conversion projects, I would say if you're gutting a basement in your mind, you're spending 120000 Now you may get a one bed, you may get a two bed. You and your luck depends on the neighborhood and um, all that stuff, but your rent will be between, call it 1600 to 1900 But most people say, well, that's an extra sixteen to, uh, to, to, to nineteen hundred that I didn't have. But it's not true because upstairs becomes a little bit cheaper, call it five, 600 bucks less because now it's a shared space. They're not renting the whole home. So the rent upstairs becomes a little bit cheaper. So you're really netting, call it 1100 to $1,300, but you spent 120 In the garden suite, if you have an existing structure, it depends how good the bones are. And let's call the average garden suite somewhere from 400 to 500 square feet, and you're only going to get a one bed, but it's a detached structure. So you're going to spend somewhere between 90 to $120,000 with all the servicing and everything, but you're getting back $2,100 a month. You say 90 to 120? 90 to $120,000. That's not bad. No, because if the bones are good. Right. If you have something that's falling apart. So I bought one that had, uh, well, I hadn't seen it, but then when I came in and I actually saw it as part of the conditions, there was no concrete slab. So it was just sitting on soil and there were wood planks on top of it. So that's an example. Like those are not good bones. So that's going to cost you, obviously. But assuming you have a regular garage, walls are up, the roof looks decent, it's maintained. Maybe there was an old couple in there. Then uh, the husband used to use it as a garage or a workshop or something like that for his tools. It was generally in good shape. It'll be spending between 90 to 120,000. And the rent you're getting back is 2,100 a month long term. But here's the crazy part if you're looking at moving into the home, and you can do Airbnb there. And I've done between 33 to $3,500 a month from a unit like that. 33 to $3,500 a month just from the garden suite. So imagine mm-hmm. you're living in a home and you do this conversion. You rent the basement, you're getting a little bit of income, 1600 And then you decide, you know what? The garage, I'm going to do an Airbnb. That's another $3,500. You're getting close to five grand a month. Yeah. Mortgage might be paid off. They're going to for free. Yeah. So it makes sense from that standpoint. Here's the pain point. Got it. Good stuff. Here's the pain point. Appraisals, super difficult for you to get what it's worth. Because if you get a property right now and the property is a duplex to the home and the garage is a garden suite, it's going to be roughly somewhere in and around in the Hamilton area, $7,000 a month. Property that makes $7,000 a month should be worth, you know, in and around, when you do all the calculations about them, over a million, a million dollars or maybe a little bit over a million dollars. So very, very few appraisers are actually assigning the value of the garage to the home, to the property. And when you do, it's coming in, you know, 80, 90, $100,000 under what it should be worth. And then when you have that appraiser, even less lenders are actually using that because some of them just say, no, unless it's attached to the home, we won't give a loan against it. Much more limited with the lending. So it's harder for you to pull your money back out. But if it was easy for you to pull your money back out, you wouldn't be able to buy these houses at a deal today. Exactly. Yeah. So it's one of those things when there's something new to the market, do you want to be part of those first 10, 20% of the people that are jumping in based on risk, but they are going to wait a little bit longer 
or do you want to wait for it to be a bit more widespread? Because when the lending becomes more common, they're not going to be selling at the price that they're selling at. Yeah. It's a theory and I'm curious if you've ever encountered this, but the entire problem with the garden suite garage is the fact that it's a detached dwelling on its own. And so I'm always wondering like what happens if you just connect the two units through like a hallway, you know what I mean? Like something really stupid, but would it not be possible? I don't have an answer, but this is more so for the guests on here. If anyone wants to give that a shot, let me know how it goes. <laughs> but you know, that could be a possible solution, but I'm also curious because not every property has like a pre-existing like separate garage, right? So 90 to 120 with the garage, let's say there's nothing there. I guess either way you're doing brand new utility connections and stuff like that. Right. But for the shell, like how much more does that make it cost if you don't have the garage? A lot more. A really? lot. Yeah. Because keep in mind, if you're building new, you're not working with an existing envelope. You're going to build to the limits. So which yeah. is 800, 800 square feet. So you're mm-hmm. building more too. And everything's from scratch. You still have a roof, no matter what, no matter how many square feet it is, you're paying for a roof. It's probably still $5,000, maybe $6,000, depending how big it is, possibly taking out a basement. So the construction costs, if you're looking to build something new, do not even think about it if the numbers, if uh, 250,000 doesn't work with the numbers. So you got to think at a minimum, you're putting in 250. That being said, it may end up costing you 230, may end up costing you 270, but don't think that you're getting it done for $150,000 because it's a small space. No. And just to add on to sort of what we're chatting about being an early adopter in this strategy, I don't disagree with that, right? I think that when things take, it's like the duplex conversion, when it became super popular, the value of these bungalows were very close to the value of duplexes. They were probably like 100, 150K off. So the people had to step forward with triplex conversion. My thought process on this is, is to buy properties that have the potential to do it, but you don't necessarily need to do it immediately, right? Because with new investors, it's a lot to stomach to put in quarter million tied into the property that you won't be able to pull out to grow, right? However, if you can work within the existing structure and then have the potential in the future, when it becomes more widespread or when the bank recognizes it for financing, then you can tap into that because he still bought it as quote unquote, an an early adopter. The other um, sort of question that I have is with these garden suites, and uh, I guess laneway homes, I assume that you've also done as well. What are the common mistakes that investors make? And the reason I say this, because in Toronto, everyone sees, specifically downtown Toronto, everyone sees a garage at the back of the house, like laneway potential. No, not true. Like the vast majority will not get qualified for a laneway because it's not close to fire hydrant. It's impossible for medical emergency to get in and out. Like what are common issues and due diligence that people need to do when they're looking to find a property that can qualify as a potential laneway or garden suite in the future? Yeah. So you mentioned the big one, obviously, that you have to be able to get emergency services to come in and out of the property. So the size of the laneway needs to be large enough. And don't quote me on it, but uh, I don't have the number off the top of my head. Obviously, if you have discussions with an architect that does a lot of these garden suites, and there's quite a number of them, and if you need, we can, uh, I can give you a list of them as well, then obviously it's a lot better to go through a dialogue with them because once you've gone through a property where you have a couple of big ticket items that you think that you've vetted out and you put a conditional offer, you can then bring them in, you know, so you're also not taking up their time and then rely on them to do a complete due diligence on it. But yes, obviously there needs to be a laneway coming into the home. So if you have a house that just logically speaking built onto a property line, there's no way for any emergency services to get through the back. So it can't really be a home. You need to be able to have a fire truck, uh, people run in with a hose in the back in case there's an emergency. The garage itself needs to be large enough. We get a lot of calls from people who say, oh, I got a garage in the back. I want to turn it into a home. 
And then when our office vets it out, you know, they ask, okay, well, what's the dimension of the garage? Let's say, you know, it's like 12 by 10. So it's, it's more like a shed, like an oversized shed. So it needs to be a legitimate living space. Call it for the sake of round numbers, minimum 300 square feet and up. So it's a full blown garage. It's quite large, right? And then those you can start converting into homes, but it's not anything that you could just convert in the back. Right. Have you seen a lot of people do the two units in the garden suite or no? I think that was a thing in the Barry and Aurelia where, you know, they were building down, keeping a basement, even if you're not adding the second unit today, maybe in the future you'll be allowed to or something like that. Are you starting to see that or, or not really? I am not. And I actually don't have the answer to that. I don't know if you're allowed to do two units in a garden suite. Yeah. I don't think so either. I think it was people might've just been banking that opportunity for the future. Like if you're doing a concrete pad, what's the incremental cost is just to the basement, right? And maybe it's worth it to have that future potential at some point down the road, right? Yeah. But that's interesting. So the garden suite strategy, like are there certain cities that you're seeing it's more common in? I don't think we touched on that. I know obviously you're central to Hamilton, but do you have an idea like what other cities, maybe the prices supported and stuff like that? Yeah, the, the four best cities that support this right now are Hamilton, Brantford, Kitchener, and Toronto. It makes sense into like, if you're going to do that construction cost for something like that is going to be in and around similar in most right. cities, right? Maybe a little bit more in tertiary markets because there's less competition, which yeah. is actually even worse if it costs more there, but you need the ARV. I know they, they're not appraising it, but you need the future potential ARV to support it. And in markets like what you were saying, Hamilton, Toronto, Brantford, they support it, right? Yeah. And I kind of want to touch on... I mean, you've done 150 units over the past three years. And I guess we're, we're going to get to your portfolio in a minute, but the 150 units in the past three years, there's probably a lot of different strategies, things that you've seen that were right that investors did and things that were wrong. Personally, like I'll give an example. Something that I did wrong earlier was choose the cheapest vinyl I could get per property. And a year or two, they start buckling and I have to yeah. end up replacing it, right? Yeah. Uh, versus just going with the higher end stuff to begin with or laying down underlayment, so on and so forth. What are common mistakes that you see in renovations from investors? It could be over renovating, cheap materials, so on and so forth. Like, What are things that you think that new investors should totally avoid that a lot of people are doing? I think the biggest thing with newer investors, I find maybe sometimes they get into the project and they're a little bit impatient. So when they're impatient, it means they sort of want to get a property a lot faster. So they want to buy something a lot faster. And typically that means they buy it at a bit more expensive of a cost, right? Because they didn't wait for the right opportunity and weren't strategic about it and whatnot. And when they buy in high, it goes hand in hand with that impatience. What happens is they'll have a budget, but that budget is something in mind just to work, to make their numbers work. But that may not be representative of real life at all. So I see this all the time and that's why we don't necessarily work with too many flippers. People that just want to make a quick flip and make a quick buck because they will legitimately come to our office. Our estimator will go out and they will ask for 120 to maybe 140, even $150,000 worth of work. And they're like, oh, I don't have a budget, whatever it costs type of thing. And the cost come in and say, what? My budget was 50 grand, 60 grand. It's like, it doesn't right. even cover material. So when you're so far off like that, that project is going to be a failure from day one because you already bought too high. There is no way to make that project work. So when you're going in, understand that in real estate, time is the biggest value and it's the biggest compounding return and creator of wealth. So it's going to take time. 
you're not necessarily going to be able to pull out all your money back out. And you have to be ready for that money to be sitting in the property, in my opinion, for five years plus. Unless you're super sophisticated, you have an extreme network of contacts, like a private equity fund or something like that, where you just know you're buying stuff super low by the end of the year, I'm going to get rid of this portfolio. Unless you're that, then you need to make sure that what you're buying, you're willing to keep some money into and you're willing to hold on to for at least five years. Otherwise, don't get into it if you're looking to make a crazy return within a year, because that's what happens. People end up slapping stuff together. And like you said, they cheap out on the things you can't see, subfloors, insulation, reusing existing trim, refinishing cabinetry, which is already falling apart just to make it look like a decent lipstick job. And one year in, you have this much of a maintenance bill. Not worth it. Like a story of our lives. <laughs> yeah. But Dave, so on the topic of holding your properties for a long period of time, I'm curious, like, where are you investing now? And like, well, what does your portfolio look like? I know you started back in 2016, I think you said, but how has that kind of changed over the years? Because you started the single family, I think you went to conversions. What are you up to today? What's the portfolio look like? So my portfolio is all residential right now. It's all duplexes and triplexes. Right. Now it's funny because if you ask me that in a couple of months, like the lending is becoming super difficult. So it's really hard to pull out the full refinance and full value of what it's worth. So I am considering consolidating a little bit and potentially selling a lot, if not all of it, to get into something where I could just scale a little bit more, like multifamily or commercial financing or something like that. But right now it's just composed of a bunch of duplexes and triplexes, That's right. which is super hard to scale. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I know me and Austin have gone through the same exercise of sell off a bunch of single families and a couple of duplexes here and there and kind of repurpose those funds for other investments, right? Yeah. On that topic of your portfolio, obviously, you know, repurposing the funds, you've also got like the active business, right? So how do you kind of consider your short-term investment strategy versus the long-term? How do you also balance like the business and the portfolio and the real estate contract side versus the real estate investing side? Just partially curious, you know, we all have our short-term strategies or long-term strategies. Just wondering how you balance it all out. I try not to focus too much on the short term because I think the real estate business is more of a long-term play. People that have accumulated like really impressive, tremendous wealth have done it over a period of time. People now maybe seem to be too influenced by social media and Instagram and sort of like overnight success. And from a practical standpoint, it really, really doesn't happen that quickly. There's very few exceptions, but just because I know someone that won the lottery doesn't mean I'm going to go play the lottery every single day and you know, try and win. So I think the goal should always be your entire focus and your energy and your effort needs to be towards the long-term success of the project. So don't worry as much about a couple of thousand that you have to put in extra today because it's going to relieve you of a lot of headache for a couple of years. You know what I mean? So when you're going and you're doing a conversion and you get a plumbing quote for $15,000, that is replacing all the plumbing in the house and someone else comes in and says, oh, well, you know, we can reuse this and we can reuse that. It's going to be 12,000. Don't let just those $3,000 be the deterrent on whether you do the work or not. If you've done it a hundred times before and you know that this is good to go, you're taking a calculated risk, that's no problem, then keep it. But if you're not entirely sure and the contractor, for example, is recommending that it should be changed and it's a trustworthy contractor that has potentially done other investment properties before, Go with the recommendation. The three thousand dollars savings may not be worth it. Awesome. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, touches that a couple of things we talked about during the, during the episode. <laughs> but you know, I guess relating to that, usually at the end of the podcast, I like to ask I guess two questions. The first is kind of related to that. Like, where do you see your business growing over the next two to three years? 
Uh, right now with the shift in commercial, we're going after a lot of public work. So um, the, the public work you have to be, it's, it's a different ball game because you have to be uh, bonded with a surety and a bunch of stuff. So we're just slowly looking to continue building our relationship with our surety and uh, increasing those limits and going after a lot of public tenders. But then again, on the personal side, I'm still continuing to invest in real estate. So anything that I acquire needs to be distressed with some potential value add. So whatever that is, whether that's a vacancy or the unit is physically in a poor shape, or you could be getting more units within that base, for example, then that's what I want to continue growing into. Anything that is a value add is, I think, where you should be focusing your time, energy, and money. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely. More so now than ever, especially yeah. with what's going on in the market. You need to get cheap, distressed properties. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's why I'm not too into things like uh, pre-construction and whatnot, because you're really just riding the market. Right. And the second question, I know we talked about this a bunch during this episode, but for newer investors that are kind of getting started today, what kind of, what's kind of like one piece of advice that you'd leave them with? The comment that I said before about short-term versus long-term. If you're looking to buy a property, it's always good to give this advice on high level. If you're looking to buy a property, make sure this is something that you're willing to hold on to for five years. Because when I say that, it's both you're writing it off from an energy standpoint in terms of how much effort you're going to be putting in and from a financial standpoint. And when you do that, it's going to relieve a lot of effort on your end. If you're looking for something to make a return within one year, and then you're planning your life around that and that return doesn't come in, things can really go south. So you're buying real estate, make sure you're buying it. The money's staying in there for five years. Awesome. Really appreciate all of the wisdom and advice that you provided. You sort of had the unique experience where not only do you invest for yourself, you also do these massive projects with a ton of other investors as well. One cool thing I think you mentioned is, is that people like to sort of sit on the sidelines during a time like this where, um, you know, a lot of people in construction are, are trying to double down on finding more jobs in the residential side. And if it's slow, it's slow. You can't manufacture demand, right? So you're almost pivoting your business into where the opportunity is given the market environment. So I love to hear that from business owners and entrepreneurs, that people want to connect with you, learn more about your journey or potentially work with you and your construction company at U4. I know we didn't say the name, but U4 for those who, who want to learn more about it, how could they best connect with you? Uh, you can just go to our website, go to newfor.com. If you're looking for us to help you on any one of your projects, or you just need to pick our brain fill out a quote me form. Otherwise, our number is also found online. Just Google new four or it's 289-201-7888. Awesome. Really appreciate it. If you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with a friend, like it, subscribe. I don't know if you can subscribe to a podcast, but if you can, you should do that too. It helps us bring great guests like uh, Safe On. And until next time, everyone invest smarter and live better. Take care all.